Good evening. My name is Kathy Henderson. I'm Associate Director for Exhibitions and Education here at the Harry Ransom Center, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Uh, that said, I would like to invite you to turn off all of your mobile devices as a courtesy to our speaker this evening. Uh, and we're just delighted that you could join us for this program uh, being offered in conjunction with um, the exhibition, The King James Bible, Its History and Influence. We have some special guests this evening, which we would like to um, remark. First, members of the Institute of the Humanities at Salado, who have long been affiliated with and supportive of the Ransom Center, and a special group of alumni of the University of Oxford, the Oxonians. A special welcome to yeah, both of those groups. Before introducing tonight's uh, generous sponsor of the program, I would like to mention that Dr. Helen Moore's book, Manifold Greatness, The Making of the King James Bible, will be available for purchase at our visitor services desk during the reception that is immediately following her talk. Now, I'm very pleased to introduce to you Jerry Baker, a 1983 graduate of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, where he studied philosophy, politics, and economics. Working first in the financial markets, Mr. Baker then turned to journalism, writing for the BBC, the Financial Times, and the Times of London. He is now deputy editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal and has been living stateside for 16 years. Please join me in welcoming Jerry Baker, representative of the Wall Street Journal, who's the generous host of this program, and who will introduce Dr. Helen Moore. Thank you very much, uh, Kathy. That was a very kind, very warm introduction. Thank you all for, uh, for, for being here this evening. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, to be here in Texas. I'm usually in New York. I've spent a fair amount of time in Texas in the last couple of years, though, um, covering uh, various political events that you've had here, uh, including, including a, a former president who I covered quite a lot and, uh, uh, while, I was, uh, while I was covering politics in, in Washington. Um, but it's a, it's a real pleasure, it's a particular pleasure to be here at the Harry Ransom Center, this, this marvelous collection of, of uh, cultural uh, materials from um, around the world, and obviously for this particular event for the King, King James Bible. Now, um, we at, uh, I, uh, as uh, Kathy said, I'm a graduate of Oxford. I went to Corpus Christi College, uh, and I still retain very fond, uh, very strong links with the college. Uh, as you may or may not know, the college was actually founded in 1517, just we're in five years' time. The college will be celebrating its 500th uh, anniversary, and some big celebrations are planned for that. Um, what I should say is that, obviously, in 500 years, Quite a lot has, has changed. Uh, the role of Oxford uh, in England has changed quite a lot. England's role in the world has changed quite a lot. Uh, it's not quite as quite the top nation that we used to like to think of ourselves back in those days. We've been rather surpassed by countries to, to the east and west. Um, but it is interesting. I think Oxford is the kind of still very much one of the uh, is a obviously one of the great global universities and is. Uh, very much still the place where, which I think uh, offers a, a particular uh, opportunity for, for people uh, to, uh, to, to, to study and obviously to, to get out and into the world and still to influence the world. I think Oxford's influence in the world is very strong. In fact, it's often thought, I think, that Oxford people like to think of themselves perhaps a little, as having a little more influence in the world than they generally do. Um, we have, uh, we have uh, one of my favourite jokes uh, that I've heard at the moment is, uh, is about a, one of our, an Oxford graduate who happens to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom at the moment, David Cameron. Um, and I think the story captures rather well, I think, the way so many people from Oxford and from England perhaps 
despite the realities of the economic realities, actually consider themselves, see their role in the world. And the joke goes like this. It says that uh, one day God calls down from heaven and he calls on President Obama, President Hu Jintao of China and, and Prime Minister David Cameron and he calls them up to heaven and he says, I've got very important news for you and you've got to go back and tell your people about it. The world is going to end tomorrow and you've got to get ready for it. And so President Obama goes back to Washington, goes on national television and says, um, I've got good news, my fellow Americans, and bad news. The good news is there is a God, and we God-fearing religious Americans have been right about that all along. Um, <laughs> the, the bad news is the, I've met him, and he's told me the world's going to end tomorrow, and we've got to get ready for it. President Hu Jintao goes back to Beijing, goes on national television and says, I've got bad news and, frankly, even worse news. The bad news is there is a God, and we God, a, a, a godless, atheistic, communist Chinese have been wrong about that all along. And the worst news is I've met him, and he's told me the world's going to end tomorrow, and we've got to get ready for it. And David Cameron, in his full splendor, goes back to Britain, goes back to London on national television and says, Great news. God considers me to be one of the three most important people in the world. <laughs> So it gives you a sense, I think, still of the way we uh, people at Oxford uh, uh, view, view, our, view our role in the world. But it's, it, is, it is great to be here uh, at the University of Texas at the Harry uh, Ransom Center. Um, as I said, I, as, Helen, as Kathy said, I'm the deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal. We're delighted to be sponsoring this. Um, if you think about it, sometimes there's not necessarily a lot, of, lot in common between the Wall Street Journal and the King James Bible. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, the King James Bible is uh, primarily a sort of a, uh, the expression of the word of God. And, and as much as we in the Wall Street Journal have faith in our journalism, um, I can't really say that we, have, we think it's really divinely ordained. Although if you talk to the editorial page, they probably have a slightly different view about it. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be, to be part of this and to be here. Uh, you're going to hear from Helen Moore, who's a fellow uh, and tutor in English at Corpus Christi College. Uh, I've heard her talk before, uh, uh, which we, we did one of these in Washington about six months ago. It's a really fascinating, fascinating uh, tour d'horizon through the um, creation of the, uh, the King James Bible. Uh, Helen is, as I say, a fellow and tutor at, at Corpus Christi College. She's, uh, she's here. She's going to be uh, taking us through it. So without further ado, let me introduce uh, Dr. Helen more. Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much indeed, Kathy, for your welcome, and also, Jerry, for your very kind words. This is my first visit to Texas, um, and everything I've heard about the warmth of Texan hospitality has been um, thoroughly proved and underlined, so thank you to you and your state for your very, very warm welcome wherever we have gone. It's a great privilege to be speaking here at the Harry Ransom Centre and to be part of your exhibition on the King James Bible, its history and influence, celebrating together the 400th anniversary of the publication of the King James Bible in 1611. The work on the translation took place between 1604 and 1608. It was a collaborative enterprise drawing together the expertise of 50 or so translators. And so it is very apt that this 400th anniversary should have been marked by a unique global collaboration of the Harry Ransom Center, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, and the Bodleian Library in Oxford, the three locations for the linked exhibitions. Um, the first two of those exhibitions had the title Manifold Greatness, 
which has also become the title for various um, enterprises that we three institutions have been involved in. There's an award-winning website. You might have seen sections of it in the exhibition, a travelling exhibition that has gone across 40 libraries in the United States, um, a book um, and an app and so forth. So I would like to, um, the Bodleian's first app, (laughs) Um, I would like to, if you like, um, note um, the value in our global age of collaboration and to extend my grateful thanks also to the Wall Street Journal for enabling this uh, event tonight. It has been tremendous and very moving for me personally to see the way in which the Harry Ransom Centre has given the manifold greatness theme of the Oxford and Washington exhibitions its own particular inflection with the wonderful sections that you have here on the Bible and the book arts and the King James Bible and modern culture. You have a truly remarkable collection. It's a world resource. Um, I obviously work in academia, and um, the Harry Ransom Centre in my field of English literature it has an iconic and mythic and powerful force to it. Um, when I told colleagues I was coming here, there are only two responses, one of which was, lucky you, I've always wanted to go. It's heaven on earth, surely, which is a certain theme developing here. And the other response was, lucky you, I've been. And did you know that when I was there opening the box of the papers of X or Y, the example of, uh, that most recently was Evelyn War, um, an undiscovered, unannotated, undiscussed, piece of literary memorabilia fell into my lap and my stomach turned over. Um, and, and those two responses, I think, sum up the, uh, the value, if you like, of what you do here in preserving literary, artistic, humanitarian culture um, for, for the world. I'd like also to offer my congratulations to the curators of this exhibition. I, I think some but not all of them are here tonight. Um, they have reinterpreted our theme um, from Oxford and Washington with imagination um, and flair. Um, congratulations and my sincere admiration for the memorable and spellbinding achievements of your exhibition here. Um, This has been a transatlantic enterprise, but my topic tonight is the specific role um, of Oxford in the translation of the King James Bible, and working outwards from that theme, um, I will be drawing in um, a sort of overview of um, what I'm calling the process of making in the King James Bible. Um, Oxford was very significant in the preceding history of biblical translation into English, in the linked tradition of intellectual and religious and political reform, and also in the development of the scholarship methods that still underpin everything we do in studying the humanities. Um, The groundwork was laid for the translation, for it to be envisaged and for it to be executed by this combination of um, religious fervour, intellectual conviction, technical skill, and political will. Um, and um, I'm going to explore some of the, um, the manifestations um, of that tonight. The Bodleian exhibition was called um, Manifold Greatness, Oxford and the Making of the King James Bible. We, when planning it, um, would have loved to do the kind of thing you've done here, extending our our look at the subject into the influence of the King James Bible. But um, once we started to pull together our potential exhibits, we found that um, a, a suspicion we had had proved to be very true, which is that there is a vast resource of um, archival and book 
book-related and material artefacts surviving in Oxford libraries that has never been displayed to the public or reunited. And one of the particular personal um, um, pleasures of the exhibition was that we brought together what um, um, I took to calling the big three, which are the three surviving material witnesses to the actual process of translation of the King James Bible. I'll be talking about them in more, more detail, but they are what's called the annotated Bodleian Bishop's Bible. You may have seen a facsimile in the exhibition which shows the annotations of four of the six companies working on the translation. John Boyce's notes, which are notes concerning the Committee of Final Revision, and Lambeth Palace Manuscript 98, which is a manuscript translation of the um, epistles. Those three artefacts have never been displayed together. So in the first time in 400 years, we brought them back, to, back together again. Um, the um, exhibition attracted 58,000 um, visitors. I gather you've had very good visitor numbers here so far and have had, like us, the experience of a very wide demographic of visitors. Um, we had groups from far and wide, school groups. I had emails from school pupils saying they had decided to read history at university because of what they'd seen, from octogenarians and beyond who had found it physically very difficult to get there but were determined to come and see what they thought um, was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I think um, it, that was certainly the first, the Oxford one was the first exhibition I curated, and uh, that was a real insight into the value of um, exhibitions in terms of providing access, understanding, and also the thrill of encounter to an audience that isn't able, as we academics and scholars are, to in, uh, physically engage with these materials um, day to day. We very much wanted, in planning the exhibition, to reveal the material culture of the KJB. We wanted to show people the books the translators owned, both secular and religious, the notes they made, the records of their daily collegiate lives, the scientific treatises and the instruments that they wrote and used. They were polymaths. They wrote texts on um, antiquarianism, geography, topography. Um, they translated from the classics as well as the Bible. The Bible translation was just one of the many, many things that they did. Our aim was to demolish, um, reverently and seriously of course, but very firmly, the myth that the King James Bible somehow fell from the sky, fully formed. Um, it did not, you don't need me to tell you that, but, um, but it, it didn't. Um, it was worked on as an academic enterprise, it was crafted as rhetoric and as poetry, it was argued over, um, it was um, endlessly fiddled with in multiple layers of committee meetings, private endeavour and consultation. It was in many ways a very modern undertaking and I think in that, uh, the modernity of that method, it has a lot to teach us about the um, continuing relevance of collaboration and collective enterprise in furthering the knowledge of humanity. So we wanted to reveal the hidden history known only to a few specialists previously of the cultural circumstances of the King James Bible. Now the unifying title, Manifold Greatness, is adapted from the opening words of the dedication to the 1611 KJB. Those words praise God and King James um, for the manifold and great blessings of his reign. Manifold means abundant and diverse. Both the making of the King James Bible and also the history of Bible translation into English can therefore suitably be characterised as abundant and diverse. 
Translations of um, the Bible into English began in a partial way in the Anglo-Saxon period. For example, with this 10th century um, Old English gloss or partial translation. The Old English is the uh, scribal annotation that you can see added between the lines of this Latin MacRegal Gospels now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Um, The first full translation of the Bible into English was the Wycliffeite Bible. That was made by followers of John Wycliffe and perhaps began in Oxford in the 1370s. Another Oxford man, William Tyndall, here shown in a modern-ish stained glass window in Hartford um, College, um, in the 1520s took the significant step of translating from the original Greek and Hebrew rather than from the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, as had formerly been the case. And there's a a lovely 16th century painting in the exhibition here um, of St. Jerome working feverishly on his translation of the Bible. Tyndall's translation was suppressed. He was persecuted and eventually killed. But his translation was smuggled and circulated, and it found its way into the hands of some surprising people. This is Anne Boleyn's copy of Tyndall's New Testament, a beautiful, beautiful book. We were very honoured to be granted the loan of this book by the British Library for our Oxford Manifold Greatness exhibition. You have here on loan from the Folger, um, the um, um, Queen Elizabeth's um, Bible, um, her copy of the, uh, the Bishop's Bible. Um, Despite the um, persecution Tyndall suffered for his translation, the translation that is, of course, the basis for all future English translations, including the KJB, his words are to be found in the authorised English Bibles that followed Henry's break with Rome, such as this great Bible of 1539 um, with the, uh, the, the, the famous... Um, image of Henry there dispensing the Bible to his people who are down at the bottom here and they're all saying vivat rex Um, and so here you have um, in uh, a a very odd historical irony Henry the persecutor of Tyndall turned into Henry the sponsor of biblical translation for many manifold abundant and diverse reasons not least of which of course was his break with Rome during the 1530s as a consequence of wanting to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn whatever the reasons this change of heart on Henry's part was a crucial moment in the history of um, English literature, culture, and specifically um, Bible translation. Now, Tyndall's work had been made possible by the advances in textual scholarship and ancient language study that had been stimulated by the new learning of the Renaissance. Um, That uh, new learning was exemplified by the founding of Corpus, here it is, um, in um, 1517 by Bishop Richard Fox. Now, Fox did a remarkable thing in establishing lectureships in Latin, Greek, and theology. Um, The remarkable thing was putting Greek on the curriculum for the first time. It provoked riots in Oxford. The gates had to be locked. Sermons would preach denouncing Fox and his college for this um, avant-garde move. Um, the reason why Greek was contentious, of course, was because it, um, it challenged the medieval scholasticism that had held sway in Oxford. Greek was a very, very significant intellectual and technical advance 
for the generation, the couple of generations that preceded our translators. Greek gave access to Arabic learning, to mathematics, to new thinking in medicine, to, to philosophy in a form unmediated by Latinity. And so Greek is very, very significant in the intellectual history of the, King, of the roots of the King James Bible. Also, of course, Fox's um, support for scholarship, his generous endowment through the founding of this college and the similar acts of other people like him changed um, the course of history. Um, and I think in that context, I would very much like to, to remark and to thank the, um, the National Endowment for the Humanities with my Harry Ransom colleagues and other generous persons and institutions for their invaluable support. Like Fox, they advance the boundaries of our knowledge through ambitious projects such as this. Advances in scholarship and the maintenance of our tradition in the humanities and our culture are dependent on the generosity of such institutions and persons. And I would like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its generous support of this project very much indeed. Books and learning drove this. Uh, books and people drove this revolution in learning. In no small sense, they made the King James Bible, just as the Wycliffeite translators and Tyndall took the first steps towards making its words that are still so well known today. So I've charted two ways in which the King James Bible um, was made through a long history of biblical translation and the furtherance of learning. The King James Bible was also, of course, the product of a particular set of historical and political imperatives that are specific to Jacobean England. When James VI of Scotland acceded to the English throne in 1603, he inherited a church divided broadly between those who favoured further reform. Um, at the time, they called themselves and were called by others the godly, but they are now known as the Puritans. And the other party, those who felt that the cause of reform had gone far enough in England. Into that first group, the group of the godly, fell many clergymen and academics who represented immediately to James on his succession their desire for greater reform in the areas of particularly church ritual, church government and church preaching. Those opposing the, the godly were defensive of church government by bishops, of ritual and vestments. Now, in 1604, um, matters came to a head, and to try and lance this um, boil of contention, James called a conference here, Hampton Court um, Palace. Um, at this conference, the four spokesmen of the Puritan party were summoned to make their case. Their leader was John Reynolds, president of Corpus Christi and a notable scholar of ancient languages, particularly Hebrew. And here you see a fascinating link through from that foundation of Corpus with its emphasis on the ancient languages to Reynolds and the start of the King James Bible. Um, Reynolds was a great man, a great scholar, but possibly not the best politician of his age. Um, his requests for reform were cast aside one by one. Then very dramatically at the 11th hour, he suggested there should be a new translation of the Bible. He went off script. You can imagine the surprise potentially of his, um, uh, of his companions. But the idea piqued James's academic fancy. You have here evidence um, of James's interest in intellectual things, um, in matters of, um, of, of worldly knowledge and spiritual speculation. 
And so he liked this idea, and he instituted the project. Um, It had not been part of one of the proposals, the intended proposals of the Puritans, but it was, ironically, um, the only one to succeed. Things moved very rapidly thereafter. Six companies were set up. There were two each in Oxford and in Cambridge and in Westminster, which is around Westminster Abbey. Um, And the books of the Bible were divided between them. The first Oxford committee met in Corpus. uh, This is uh, what's called the Tower Room. It's in the front range um, of the, the, um, the, the college, which is where the president would have lodged in the 16th um, century. This would have been, this is the original Jacobean plaster work, this would have been uh, one of the more formal rooms. It's likely that his study was actually in a, a sort of a garret in the roof, currently now occupied by um, one of our um, graduate students. <laughs> he... Um, in the last year has had her room photographed from many different angles but however we try and photograph that particular room we can't get rid of the fire exit signs and make it look um, anything other than a visual disappointment so um, I'm showing you here a room that does look Jacobean that is not uh, unduly uh, uh, troubled by fire exit signs so this would have been if you like Reynolds's parlour the second Oxford company met in um, Merton College they're beautifully restored. I don't know if there are any of the Oxonians here remember Merton in a rather blacker, sootier state. Um, but Merton is glorious and luminous now on Merton Street there in the, uh, in the south of Oxford. Um, the, that second Oxford committee translated the Gospels, the Acts and Revelation. And here is the Merton College breakfast room. The panelling is later, but this is the room in which the, um, the second Oxford committee um, met to do its crucial work on translating those key, te- key texts of the New Testament. Now, we know how the translation was organised from surviving copies of the lists of translators and the rules that were drawn up for them. This is um, MS Harley 750, kindly loaned to the Oxford exhibition by the British Library. You will see here the the grouping of the translators there, Westminster, Cambridge and Oxford, and the two committees for um, each place. Um, the lists of names vary slightly according to um, the, um, the, which manuscript um, you're looking at, but there is broad continuity. That variation is why we tend to talk about the, the number of the translators as being between 48 and um, 50. That's the, uh, the, once you've turned the folio, that's the verso of that, um, of that folio. And here you see the ending of the uh, list of translators and the beginning of the numbered rules. And um, that's the next, that's the recto of folio two, where you see the, uh, the continuation of the numbered rules there. Now, the, uh, the rules stipulated um, various matters. They stipulated, for example, that the uh, translating co- uh, committees should each work um, individually from a uh, copy of the 1602 edition of the Bishop's Bible, first published in 1568, of course, and uh, printed in different editions after that, because the Bishop's Bible was the church Bible up until 1611 and the King James Bible. Um, evidence of the translation and the use of the Bishop's Bible survives here in what is called the Bodleian Annotated Bishop's Bible, the first of the big three that I mentioned. Um, there were 40 copies 
of the Bishop's Bible distributed to the translators. One important thing to remember um, is that um, early printed books um, were sold as um, printed sheets. That is called, uh, they, they, are, they are called unbound copies. And the translators and committees would have worked from unbound um, sheets. Some of the translators might have had their copies bound, but there was a distinction in this period between the printing and the binding um, of the books. Um, and so that is the explanation of the fact that this bound up copy of the 1602 Bishop's Bible um, contains annotations from four of the six companies. So it isn't the copy that was used by any single company, but it supplies evidence of the working practices of, um, of, of several of them. That actually is, is a, a historical virtue because it has allowed the scholars who've looked at this, particularly David Norton, to um, sort of disambiguate the scribal hands and to try and analyse what methods were common to all of the translating committees and, very importantly, how closely they adhered to to that set of rules that we looked at from um, MS Harley 750. Broadly speaking, they did adhere. Um, the the um, translation as it was produced did use, for example, the established English names um, of um, biblical characters. Um, Bishop of London Richard Bancroft and King James, who together developed the rules for the translation, Bancroft promulgated them um, and supported the act of translation by trying to find money. Again, it always comes down to money to pay the translators, um, not for doing the translation but for existing so that they could then do the translation. Um, he was always searching, he was always rattling the tin, Bancroft was, saying, can somebody find a living somewhere for this impecunious academic to keep them alive um, while they translate the Bible, which has a sort of mundanity to it, doesn't it? It's quite endearing. He engaged in a great work, but they, they still need their pennies. Um, and... Um, what, one of the things that the Bancroft did not want was any puritanical respelling of names. Um, now, Puritans are great respellers of names, and they were particularly interested in the, in the theological symbolism that could be read from or into particularly Old Testament names and Old Testament settings, and Bancroft did not want any of this uh, going on, and so the King James Bible deploys the names of the, uh, uh, of the biblical characters as they have been known in our English translations. So it perpetuates um, Englishness as well as um, the, the, uh, uh, the texts of the Bible. Uh, you can see from um, this slide that um, a complex um, system of annotations was used by the scribes. These are not the, the translators' hands. These are scribes. Um, and they recorded the committee's decisions in the margins just here. They, they used a, a system of symbols to indicate um, where things should be replaced or altered, inserted or um, deleted. Um, another interesting thing that we see in the King James Bible is the way it follows the stipulation that, it, that the, this translation should, when it's looking at the previous English translations of the Bible, prioritize the one that agreed best with the original Greek and Hebrew. And so that is one of the reasons why in the final KJB you have variant readings um, in the margins, as it were, around the text, because sometimes the question of Proximity to the original Greek and Hebrew had to be played off against comprehension, 
comprehensibility, tradition, and so forth. And so you do have these marginal notes on translation. But there was no doubt at all that the KJB went back to the Greek and Hebrew in the most consistent and scholarly way of um, any of the um, preceding translations. Other translations, like the Geneva Bible, had done that, of course. But this translation had the full um, range of academic materials available because, of course, the Geneva translation had been written um, in exile in the 1550s. So when every committee had decided upon its translation, probably after about one or two years' work, their translation was sent to the other committees for consultation. Can you imagine how long that would have taken? Um, How many confusions could have entered um, um, the system? But also how remarkable it is that in an age that is very, very foreign to us now in its temporal distance, a process of what we would now be doing via via Google documents or um, a PDF transfer or Dropbox or all of the other methods we use for doing this kind of textual consultation essentially remained very similar. Their version of Google Docs would have been um, this, MS-98, kindly loaned to us from Lambeth Palace Library, the Archbishop um, of uh, Canterbury's library. He visited the exhibition in Oxford. I was a great honour to meet him. Uh, I couldn't resist saying as I took him round, um, this is one from your place. Um, uh, of course, he, he, uh, he didn't need me to tell him that. Um, uh, this is a translation of the New Testament epistles that was made by the second Westminster company. It's a beautiful manuscript. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever had the experience of, of handling um, a, a, such an artifact of immense cultural significance. My stomach literally turned over when I first um, looked at it in the library of Lambeth Palace. Um, here on the right, you have an empty blank column. Um, The luminosity of this manuscript is amazing. I'm sorry it doesn't come over in facsimile, but this paper is bright white, and these ruled lines are bright, bright red. And if any of you are interested in design, you might be intrigued to know that the redness of these lines was so visually striking to me in the contrast with the white of the paper and the black of the ink, because this has never been opened, never been displayed, never been really really sort of handed around, so it's pristine, Um, inspired my design choice for our exhibition for the book and so forth, that very rich Jacobean red um, that um, that, that um, we used across all of all of our material. It is a it is my tribute, if you like, to um, the scribe who who, who penned those lines. Um, the, um, the the fantastic thing about this not is that it is unique. This it represents a version of the translation that never reached print. Um, some of the readings were adopted for the KJB, others were not. And if you don't mind a few facts and figures for a moment to try and bring this home about the uniqueness of this document. Um, there were um, 4,000 alterations proposed to the text of the Pauline epistles in this manuscript, alterations from the text of the Bishop's Bible, for, uh, that is. Of those 4,000, for the final KJB, 844 were rejected and over 3,000 were accepted. Pretty good, pretty good sort of success rate for that committee. I think they probably gave, treated themselves to a, to a drink afterwards or something like that. A visit to a tavern if they went, ever went to such things um, when they got uh, word back that, that, that they'd managed um, such a good success. In addition, the final text of the KJB made a further 1,700 alterations that are not represented in this committee, in this manuscript. So if uh, Jerry will, will spare me, um, uh, forgive me a joke at the expense of editors, 
um, however good you think you are as a writer the first time, the editor can't resist getting his pen out. So the final committee did make another uh, 1,700 alterations. So if you like, those numbers reveal the uniqueness of this text. And I think exemplified for us that the, the point about the, K, the multivocality, multiplicity, the material multiplicities of the KJB. This is a KJB that has never been printed, read. You can't go and buy this version of the KJB anywhere, obviously. But is it a version of the KJB? Is it a version of the Bishop's Bible? A halfway house, an amalgamation, a work in progress? Is it scripture? That's another interesting question. Um, I haven't got time to um, uh, answer any of those at all, but, but it does raise some wonderful questions about scripture and materiality and text. Um, the final decision on the translation rested with the general committee. That was comprised of members of the six translating committees that met in London from 1608. Now, for many years, the workings of this final committee had remained unknown. But then in the 1950s, a copy of the notes of one of those present, John Boys, was discovered in the archives, strangely enough, of Corpus Christi College. Um, this was discovered by a wonderful gentleman to whom I would like to pay tribute, Ward Allen. Ward Allen is um, still alive and has been in correspondence with me about this project. And it has warmed his heart to see... Um, the interest in the material history of the King James Bible um, that has been um, um, made possible for members of the public by our three institutions, and that, that uh, um, it, he has had a significant influence in, on our understanding. John Boyce um, was a Cambridge man, a member of one of the committees, and he made notes of the discussion that took place in the final committee of revision. Um, uh, Boys mixed uh, Latin and Greek in his notes. He recorded how the translators drew on their knowledge of classical authors such as Homer and Sophocles and early other Christian writers to decide on the precise meanings of Greek words. And now the uh, John Boys notes and the work that Ward Allen did in bringing them to attention, um, David Norton um, of Australia has also subsequently discovered another copy of John Boys notes, I should also say, in the 1990s he found that. Um, but the work that um, Ward Allen and then David Norton has done has been remarkable because it has really shown us how the early translators viewed what they were doing with the Bible as being um, parallel to deeply interesting related with their everyday scholarly activity. They, without um, compunction, drew down their knowledge of um, classical literature, classical philosophy, um, secular texts, ancient texts, pagan texts, in order to um, uh, forge their way towards a translation of the Bible. And I think that integration, that lack of divisions in their minds between mathematics and translation, between what we... Um, we call the arts and the sciences is really um, quite um, educative for um, us in the modern um, um, century and how the um, political particularly for us in England at the moment the political rhetoric of science versus the humanities is, um, is historically very problematic and is certainly not how these our ancestors as scholars um, would have thought the translator's learning was immense um, they were classical scholars. As I have said here, you see the annotations of um, John Spencer. Again, inter interlinear annotations here, the little 
things in between um, the lines of Greek um, text. Ren uh, Spencer succeeded Reynolds as president of Corpus. He was a member of the Westminster Company that produced MS um, 98, and um, this is his, his copy of Sophocles, his uh, studying and um, teaching text, still in uh, the library of um, Corpus Christi. Um, the translators in their work visited the newly refounded Bodleian Library. They borrowed books from college libraries and they used their own. The libraries of Corpus and Merton provided remarkable um, resources. In 1519, Erasmus had praised the foundation of Corpus and its library as a trilingual institution. Trilingual in those days meaning Latin, Greek and Hebrew. This provision of classical and biblical texts, grammars, dictionaries, commentaries in ancient and Middle Eastern languages, perhaps more than any other factor, made the KJB. And it's very important to remember that in this period, religious reform and radical scholarship were international enterprises. Um, anyone who's visited Oxford's Bodleian Library or studied there um, will have seen the um, frieze in the upper reading room of the Bodleian. If you did study there, I hope this provides a moment of nostalgia, not horror. Um, <laughs> Uh, does anyone know the upper reading room of the Bodleian? Yeah. Um, this frieze goes all the way around the room, and um, it's, a, it's a piece of local pride. Uh, it records Oxford um, luminaries. Um, here you have a remarkable section. This is the section in which our man John Reynolds appears there. This was obviously his well-distributed image. Um, the people he appears by, uh, next to are very interesting. Here, Luther, looking suitably um, sort of... Uh, I don't know, secular, Germanic. <laughs> um, uh, Erasmus, looking suitably scholarly, harrowed. <laughs> and here, uh, Lawrence Humphrey, president of Magdalen College. Uh, Magdalen College was, is a, it was a funny old place in the 16th century. It practically got closed down in the middle of the 16th century for the hotness of its hot Protestantism, um, for its uh, repudiation of the mass. There were rumours circulating that the mass was not being observed properly in Magdalen. Um, it was founded also with a very rigorous curriculum. In the very early days of Corpus's students, they were allowed to go to only one place in Oxford, and that was Magdalen College which was regarded as being um, sort of suitably equivalently learned, they were allowed to walk along Merton Street to Magdalen um, only when accompanied by their uh, fellows, their tutors, in order to save them from the, uh, the vices and the delights of the wine, women and song to be found in Merton Street. Sadly, no, no longer there, of course. So here we have um, the, uh, 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 the fascinating conjunction of um, uh, continental um, political, religious and intellectual reform allied visually, polemically of course with a lot of local pride um, with uh, um, Reynolds and Humphrey as if to say Oxford was there at the Reformation too, don't you know? Um, and it, that's an, an interesting actually because um, subsequent history of Oxford and its connections with the, the, the royalism of course in the Civil War have obscured um, in the popular narrative if you like um, the, the, the presence of a significant body of 16th century Puritans and reformers there of which Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Humphrey and Reynolds are without doubt um, the, uh, the presiding figures um, now we wanted, as I said, in our exhibition to bring the very books used in this process of reform and revolution into the physical world of the 21st century public. 
Um, I wanted to enable people to come face to face with the translators' books. I wanted people to realise their size, sense their weight. They are huge, these books, aren't they? Uh, I wanted them to imagine the texture of the paper, the slight impress of the printing type, and for all of that to bring history alive. So we wanted to tell the story of the King James Bible through material proximities, just as you do here at the Harry Ransom Centre. We exhibited the President's Ring from Corpus that Reynolds would have worn, the paperwork admitting him as fellow, a list of books um, borrowed by the translators from Merton College Library. Of course, we don't know whether they ever took them back and (laughs) what they were fined when they didn't. Probably they had to pay in books, I suspect. Um, Of course, Bibles of all kinds were at the heart of the work of the translators. Here, from Corpus, is a remarkably influential Bible, Tremelius's Latin translation of 1569. The important thing about Tremelius was that he translated from Hebrew and Syriac and continued the process of, if you like, um, moving away from dependence um, on the Vulgate. This Bible was much used by the translators um, for reference. And this was also the translation most often still used by Milton in the writing of Paradise Lost. He knew the Geneva, he knew the King James, but his own reference point for the Bible was still Tremelius. Tremelius was also the author of an Aramaic and um, Syriac grammar. And uh, you can see examples of these languages in one of the polyglot Bibles displayed here, if you if you would uh, if you would like like to look at that, um, several of the translators were um, decidedly polyglot in a way that um, strikes awe into the heart of any modern person. I think, and um, it is an important fact that their ability to read the early Christian writings as well as um, scriptural texts was significant in um, helping them towards. Uh, the the right, if I may say that word in inverted commas, um, or at least their best guess at the right um, translation. Here, for example, you can see a uh, trilingual Bible, Reynolds' own trilingual Bible, open at the story of Jonah. And just like the polyglot Bible you've got here, you see the organisation by language there, there and there to facilitate um, textual comparisons. Um, The... the, um, the uh, extremely important role played by advances in the study and teaching of Hebrew is a very important and part of the narrative of the making of the King James Bible. Um, the translators um, were the, probably the second generation, perhaps for some of them the third, to be conversant in Hebrew. Hebrew learning had begun in a serious way in the 1540s. Prior to that, there were pockets of teaching, such as corpus, but it um, was not widely taught until the uh, the 1540s. Reynolds Reynolds and his generation then were the first to have profited fully from that advance in teaching and that linguistic facility. Their knowledge of Hebrew beyond the biblical texts was remarkable. Here you have here Reynolds' own copy, of the uh, Mishnah Torah, um, Maimonides' um, um, medieval collection of Jewish religious law, and here you have Reynolds' own um, inscription up at the top. Of course, this book provoked some real problems for us in displaying it, because, because of course, it will be read what is to a Western reader backwards. 
um, and it is simply enormous. It was so big that our sloping cases um, couldn't accommodate its vast size, and we had uh, spent a long time sort of moving it, moving it around. But this is a, a remarkable, um, remarkable document. A familiarity with Maimonides. Um, enabled, um, if you like, a proper appreciation of the connections between the Hebrew text and um, rabbinical commentary, Jewish legal culture. And the translators soaked all this up um, with alacrity. And that familiarity is one of the reasons for the significance and the, um, and the remarkableness of the King James Bible. Um, previous translators had known Hebrew, but this saturation in um, linguistic, legal, religious culture um, was profoundly significant. So we can imagine the translators meeting in a college room to pore over their annotated copy of the 1602 Bible. The room would have been piled high with books borrowed from the college library or selected from the collection of one of the fellows. You'd have had all of those sheets of the 1602 uh, Bible being scribbled on. Multiple um, multilingual editions of the Bible, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French, Italian, Spanish and German and so forth, all rubbed shoulders with editions of the early church fathers. Um, many of the translators were actively involved in editing the works of the early church fathers. They would have rubbed shoulders with classical texts, philosophy, poetry, grammars, dictionaries, works of reference. So that scene, if you like, is how the KJB um, was made in Oxford, Cambridge, and in Westminster. And this, of course, is the product, the 1611 KJB, with a preface penned by one of the translators, Miles Smith of Christchurch. That's the engraved title page by Cornelius um, Burl. It also had maps, the map of Canaan, and the genealogies by John Speed. Now, these are very interesting. They're often um, iconographically associated with the KJB and have been used a lot in this anniversary year. But in fact, they predate the KJB and are not integral to it. They are being bound in with it. Um, Speed, John Speed, had been granted a privilege to include his genealogies and map in Bibles for 10 years. So you find them in Bibles earlier and um, other than the KJB, such as the um, Geneva Bible New Testament of um, 1610. Um, they are usually prefaced um, by their own title page as a, as a distinct um, um, unit. Um, uh, they appeared in various different sizes as well, appropriate to the format. Um, the King James Bible in first edition is a folio format, which means a big sheet of paper has been printed with two pages on it and folded once. Quarto format means that the, the sheet has been folded twice, and so it is um, smaller. Those designations, folio and quarto, refer to folding and therefore to size. Um, the... Um, the, these preliminaries um, did exist in quarto format, um, and you will find them in some quarto editions of the KJB, but um, that once his privilege, his, uh, his right to include them ran out, um, they, they start to die out. Um, so they, they had a, a sort of fairly limited time span, and their existence goes sort of around and beyond um, the King James Bible itself. The KJB was a Bible for church reading. Of course, it was large and impressive. 
Um, but the um, printer, Robert Barker, had long experience in printing Bibles for private reading, in particular the popular Geneva Bible that had been the favoured reading version of the Bible. There's a a copy here that you can see. And, of course, the Geneva Bible was the Bible of Shakespeare, not the King James Bible. He, of course, didn't have a hand in translating it, and it wasn't even the Bible he read. His Bible is the Geneva Bible. That's very important because the the way that this Bible translation was referred to for many decades was the new translation. Um, And that, if you like, uh, in terms of nomenclature, wonderfully embeds it it into what I've been describing, the ongoing history of biblical translating endeavour. It is not the final, first, um, if you like, uh, most remarkable translation when it first appears. It is the new translation. Um, That designation as new carries on into the later 17th century when the term King James's Bible starts to be used, um, probably first in Scotland, where, of course, the resonances of our King James and therefore our King James's Bible um, are particularly powerful. Um, And, of course, although called the authorised version, sometimes it was not an authorised version. The making of the King James Bible didn't stop in 1611, of course, as the exhibit here displays. It had yet to become the English Bible of either the British Isles or of America. Readership of the Geneva Bible persisted late into the 17th century. That was the Bible of Milton when he read it in English, um, when he was feeling tired, (laughs) he couldn't deal with Tremelius, um, and Defoe and um, Bunyan, who also um, knew the um, King James Bible increasingly. One of the great oddities of literary history is that it was the King James Bible that was the Bible of early America, rather than the resolutely Puritan Geneva Bible, as one would have expected. Gradually, however, through a mixture of familiarity with the, with the King James and the politics of the printing houses, who, started to, who stopped printing the Geneva translation from the 1640s onwards, the reputation of the King James Bible as the English Bible took root. That process was cemented by the restoration of Charles II in 1660. But even after the restoration, the King James Bible remained and remains still a multivocal text in which the words of Tyndale and his successors still resonate through the ages. As a physical book as well, there are many reminders of the fact that as we constantly try to reiterate, the King James Bible was made. If you look, for example, at the um, New Testament Uh, title page of the 1611 King James Bible, you'll see this is immediately different. This is a woodcut, um, and the Burl title page was an engraving. In fact, this provides an overt and material link with the King James Bible's past because it has been borrowed from the Bishop's Bible, the church Bible that it displaced. The overlapping material character of the KJB with other Bibles can also be seen in its relationship with the Geneva Bible. Despite the fact that King James and Bishop of London Richard Bancroft had had, uh, taken great pains to declare the identity of the King James Bible as not the Geneva Bible um, by saying it should not have notes, visually, when it came out in quarto format, it looked just like a Geneva Bible. Now, this was an act of pure commercial savvy by the printer Robert Barker. As I said, he had long experience in printing Geneva Bibles before the King James Bible came along. And he had an imitation of the 1611 Burl title page made for his quarto, his quarto King James Bibles, but it was not used nearly as often as this 
title page. This is a title page that was well known from the Geneva Bible. It's called The Woodcut Border with a Heart-Shaped Centre, here from a Geneva Bible of 1608. This title page was first used for the King James Bible in 1612 in quarto format, I hasten to add. From 1613, this became the dominant title page for the quarto KJB. Now, the fact that the King James Bible, to many of its readers, therefore looked just like the Geneva Bible, is history playing jokes with us. Um, Another was played via this exhibit, my closing uh, thought for you tonight. Um, This is a wonderful, um, unique Bible, Charles II's very own copy of the King James Bible. If any text symbolised the conjunction of monarchical and religious power, um, this is it. This title page is um, often described as an embodiment of monarchical power, an expression of restoration and the end of Puritan and Republican aspiration in um, England. In fact, as my colleague Peter McCulloch um, discovered as we were curating the exhibition, um, this purportedly monarchical frontispiece has been copied from the Geneva Bible. Um, Here we have Solomon. Um, This is the Geneva woodcut of um, Solomon here, enthroned. Now... This was uh, not an unreasonable thing because, as you may know, James I, Charles's father, um, uh, Charles's grandfather, promoted himself as Solomonic figure of wisdom. So it is a tribute to his paternal heritage, but it is also quite surely uh, a, a mark of the indebtedness of King James, the intertwining, if you like, of the King James Bible with the Geneva Bible. Not the Geneva Bible, according to King James but actually still, not only in its words, but also in its iconography. And this little coincidence is indicative to me of the value of the material manifestations um, of words, the books, the print, the, 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 the paper, the vellum and so forth, the value of that material manifestation in understanding words better. Of course, this example also provides a closing reminder of just how multivocal the KJB is, how embedded it is in the cultural history of our past and our present, and also, of course, one would hope, our future. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.